Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Hey, welcome out to, again, to the gathering of Reach Life Church. My name's Terry. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are going to be continuing in the book of Exodus today. Actually going to be like doing a lot of Exodus today. Um, We've been looking at God's eternal plan in the book of Exodus, kind of being played out in actual history in the sands of Egypt. And although it's been playing out in the physical realm, of course, in the sands, and, and we'll see today courtrooms of Egypt, Also, we're going to see today, like um, has been thus far unprecedented in Scripture, that this battle is actually not only in the physical realm, it's also in the metaphysical realm. This is playing out between Yahweh God and the wicked powers, spirits in high places. And we're going to be uh, answering the question, who is like God? Who's like God? So I would encourage you to, to kind of buckle in today, engage your mind. I don't know if you still have cobwebs from the week or this morning or, or how much coffee you've had. Do you need more coffee or whatever? But have it if you have it with you. Uh, we're going to be covering these plagues, nine of the ten, and actually even the setup for the tenth in one sitting this morning. So five chapters of the book of Exodus all in one sitting this morning. Um, so like I said, uh, en- engage uh, today. So I encourage you to dig in during the week as well. So as you may have guessed, this is more reading than we would normally do. Like in width, we're going to be doing more reading, so it's going to require more of, of us. So lean in here, turn your Bibles on, turn your brains on. Before we get to the book of Exodus, we first need to be reminded of a little bit of context and a little bit of setup here, um, because what we're seeing take place in the book of Exodus is an exodus, right? It's it's an exit. We see the uh, Israelite people, the chosen people of God. And when we say chosen people, we mean the people through whom God has chosen to eventually bring forth the Messiah, Jesus, into the world. These are the chosen people. They've been taken captive in slavery in Egypt under a a wicked king named Pharaoh, and they are now exiting. They are being delivered by the hand of God. And so um, this, of course, was no surprise to God. Right, God is outside of time and above time and is actually the creator of time. History is his story, after all. So this, these events are, are no surprise to God. You may remember in our study of the book of Genesis that God, hundreds of years before, had told Abraham, sort of the forefather of the Israelite people, um, that this was going to take place. Genesis chapter 15 Verses 13 to 14 tell us, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. This is what God told Abraham would happen. And then last week where we read in Genesis in Exodus chapter 6 verse 6, we saw God tell Moses the exact same thing that he told Abraham hundreds of years before. God tells Moses, "Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment." So now in our text today, the time has come. 
This is it. This is the time for deliverance that God had promised to his people. And this same time is the time of judgment that God had promised to his enemies. So both of those things are going to take place in our text today. Both uh, merciful, glorious deliverance and righteous judgment are taking place in these plagues. Now, you may ask, why would God bring plagues, <laughs> right? Like these things are, are horrendous. You're going to read about them. They're terrible. Why would God do that? Well, God answers that. Uh, there are probably other reasons, but I'll name just four. The first reason that God um, brought these plagues upon Egypt was they were plagues upon and judgment upon the gods, the pagan gods of the Egyptians. We'll see later in Exodus 12 where God says, And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord, God says. Um, we won't go into all the specific details here, but many theologians and historians believe that the plagues here are directed at specific uh, Egyptian gods, specific deities that were worshipped by the Egyptians. Uh, one example would be the plague. The first plague that we're going to see is against the Nile. It was thought to be against the Egyptian god Kanum, who was depicted as a, as a man with a ram's head, and he was thought to be the giver and protector of the Nile River. And also against the Egyptian god Hapi, who was seen as sort of the spirit of the Nile and the god that was responsible for bringing forth bounty and all the fish and things like that from the Nile. Well, no. Yahweh God alone is the creator and sustainer of the Nile and of fish and of all other things that exist for that matter. And Yahweh God is just, uh, um, demonstrating his authority, his uniqueness, his identity for all of Egypt to see and, all, and for all of us to see here today. This kind of correlates with uh, maybe some of you are still following along in our church reading through the New Testament this year. You had as one of your texts this week, 1 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul says that, you know, some false religions aren't merely the doctrines of men. Many of them are the doctrines of demons, uh, where we have evil spirits set themselves up as gods to be worshipped. And this seems to be the specific case here with the gods of the Egyptians. The, the second reason um, God brought these plagues, he tells us, is to punish Egypt for his, their cruelty to God's people. Remember, they had murdered the children. They had enslaved the adults. And God, uh, again, knowing what they would do, told Abram in Genesis chapter 15, verse 14, remember, but I will bring judgment on the nation they served, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions, right? This is judgment upon that nation. And then the plagues, uh, number three, are God's response to Pharaoh's arrogance. We'll see this. Time and time again, as we get through the passage today, passages today, um, Pharaoh's arrogance and hardness of heart. You may remember back in Exodus 5, Moses had gone to Pharaoh telling him to let God's people go. And here's what, how Pharaoh responded. Well, who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Well, God is saying, you don't know the Lord? You're not him. <laughs> uh, That's the first thing you should learn. It reminds me of uh, uh, Captain America. Uh, it, there's a, in a movie, Captain America is standing there, and this woman sees Loki. She says, he's a god. And Captain America says, there's only one god, ma'am, and I'm pretty sure he doesn't dress like that. Right? Like, so we see God here uh, 
the real God who's actually there showing Pharaoh the truth about the real God and showing Pharaoh the truth about Pharaoh in the process. And number four, the plagues were the means by which God would cause Pharaoh to let God's people go. Remember back in Exodus chapter three, God told Moses, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So keep in mind here, as we go through our text today, God is accomplishing both. God is accomplishing uh, judgment upon his enemies and accomplishing, accomplishing deliverance for his people. Both of these things are being done through the plagues that we're going to be reading about. And I say keep that in mind because God is still God, and God still does the same thing in the, many of the headlines that we read in our newspaper. Well, we don't read newspapers anymore. Mainly the headlines that we read in the news. And, and um, he does the same thing, both judgment and deliverance in the crevices of our own souls today. So we need to be reminded that God's acts do both of these things. The, there's a... Um, there's, a, there's, going to be, there's going to come a day, the culmination of all of history, that's going to look a lot like this. There's a thing the Bible calls a great day, the day of the Lord, where God's people will be given ultimate deliverance and freedom, and God's enemies will be given ultimate judgment. And it will be the same day. It will be the same event. So, listen, God is altogether good. God will not let evil go unpunished, and he will keep his promise of deliverance. Both. Both. God is so good. And we'll come back to that at, at the end of our time today. So I told you we're going to read lots of scripture. Let's get into that. Exodus chapter 7. This is the longest section we're going to read today, but pull in close. Like I said, engage with the word of God yourself here. God himself wants to meet you there in his word. Exodus 7, we'll read verses 14 to 25. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and I, it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die. The Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of, G of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants, he lifted up his staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt, of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. 
Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. We'll stop there for now. So it's begun, hasn't it? God is showing his authority and power over the false gods of the Egyptians, turning the Nile River to blood. So what do we see here? First, we see uh, Pharaoh's magicians, either through uh, producing trickery that made it appear that they were also able to do what Moses and Aaron did through God's power. That's, that's one interpretation. Or they weren't sleight-of-hand kind of magicians like we're familiar with at all. They were more um, uh, wicked men empowered by evil supernatural beings to do supernatural things. That's another interpretation. Either way, when Pharaoh's magicians sort of either replicate or mimic Moses and Aaron and what they did by God's power, notice that Pharaoh mistakenly, seemingly, the way I read it, thinks that somehow mimicking God must mean that either God wasn't actually doing those things, right? Like Moses and Aaron were tricksters too. Or that because he had aligned himself with the powers of darkness, he was somehow safe from God. Do you see the terrible miscalculation that Pharaoh is making here? Some today do the same thing. Somehow, if I align myself with the powers of darkness, or somehow convince myself that God isn't real, that I'm okay. Listen, Satan is immensely powerful, and he should not be taken lightly. For example, in the book of Jude, when it talks about uh, Satan was arguing with the archangel Michael or disputing with him over the bones of Moses. After Moses dies, the the, uh, archangel Michael says, we shouldn't rebuke Satan, but we should ask God to do that. Right? Like, let God God (laughs) handle that. So, but even though Satan is immensely powerful, hear me, only God is God. Satan is not God's equal opposite. He is not. And so you can align yourself with Satan but only God is God, right? Uh, Satan is not God's equal opposite. And we'll see some of the reason that we can know that only God is God and he's, and Satan is no match for him when we get to some of these other plagues. Um, but as we'll see very soon, the Egyptian magicians aren't able to either mimic or replicate what, what God has done. They, they, they do it with these first two plagues and then... And then we, we don't really hear from them anymore. So, but here, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, literally meaning like unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Uh, Pastor James addressed this very well last week, in that, saying that in the flow of time, Pharaoh hardened his own heart time and time again. And if you read these five chapters in depth that we're going to cover today, you'll see Pharaoh even showed false repentance. Pharaoh Um, time and time again, looks like he's repenting, but he's not. He's just sorry for the repercussions, which is not repentance, right? And so Pharaoh hardens his heart, hardens his heart, false repentance, hardens his heart, and eventually God hardens Pharaoh's heart. You know, I was talking with uh, Scott Adams uh, last week. We were taking a break at Davis Day, and we were talking about this idea with Pharaoh, and Scott had a really good analogy. He said it was like, I'm paraphrasing, Scott. If I, if I mess this up, forgive me. But I thought it was really good. Uh, he said it was like Pharaoh had hardened his heart into like stone, and then it was like God poured concrete over that stone and set it into place. 
I thought that was a really good analogy physically of what's taking place spiritually in this passage. You know, to I always have to have a C.S. Lewis uh, quote in here. Uh, I know, Leslie, I know. Uh, but C.S. Lewis says, you know, essentially there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, your will be done, and those to whom God says, okay, fine, have it your way. Right? It seems here like Pharaoh is like the latter. He fights God. He refuses to recognize God as God. Therefore, he refuses to let God's people go. And God eventually says, fine, Pharaoh, have it your way. And again, as Pastor James uh, talked about last week, what we see in Exodus is an arrogant, stiff-necked, stubborn man in Pharaoh who is used by God to bring about the glorification of God's name in Egypt and the delivery of God's people from Egypt. And even in that, though, notice that our text that we just read says that after the Lord struck the Nile, he gave a full week to pass. Notice it said, after it had happened, a, a full week passed. Now, the text doesn't tell us why, but the tone that I get from it is that it seems like God has given Pharaoh and the Egyptians time to think about what just happened to ponder it and maybe repent, giving them an opportunity. We'll see time and time again. He gives opportunity after opportunity. Let's pick up the account in chapter 8, and we'll read uh, the first 10 verses together. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my, from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. You know, again, it's worth noting that even though the magicians were able to produce frogs on the land, this is the opposite of what was needed. This is the opposite of what Pharaoh wanted. The people wanted less frogs not more frogs, right? So it's kind of it's funny. Um, I read a, a, a pretty funny quote that was uh, from a pastor who was commenting on this passage, and he was making notice that uh, Pharaoh said, let's do it tomorrow. We got frogs everywhere. Where do you want them to be? For, when do you want them to be gone? Tomorrow. The guy says, this is humorous. He says, this is also a lesson to be learned. Moses gives Pharaoh the option to determine when the frogs are going to be taken away. And Pharaoh, in his arrogance, says, okay, then let's do it tomorrow. He says, I don't know. Is Pharaoh married? 
I don't know if his wife could speak plainly to him, but I can just imagine the potential conversation there. Like, honey, the place is filled with frogs, and you want to wait 24 hours to, to get rid of them. Um, pretty funny stuff. But, you know, I think maybe Pharaoh was hoping that the frogs would go away on their own. And if they did, he wouldn't have to admit that he was wrong and God was right. right? Let me stop and make just a little application for us there. I think a lot of times when God brings conviction to us, we, we tend to like just try to walk all, along as though nothing's happened. Maybe everything will work out. And if things work out okay, I don't have to admit that I was wrong and that God was right. Well, let's not be like, let's not be like Pharaoh. Um, this, this situation with the Nile and the frogs was very gentle compared to what's coming. And I think a lot of times in our lives, we don't respond to God's very gentle nudging. We just try to carry along whistling through a graveyard. We don't have to admit we're wrong that way. Well, then the warnings get louder and they get stronger and life gets all kinds of crazy. Hopefully we will listen. Next, um, let's pick up in verse 16 of chapter 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. You know, textual scholars aren't exactly sure what the specific insect is that's being referred to and translated as the word gnat. So your Bible may have a different uh, type listed there, but the point is that there were bugs like flying, biting, annoying bugs everywhere, so much so that it was the, like, how much dust is in a desert? Right? Uh, Nancy, who's traveled there, a lot, right? It says that all the, the dust of the land became gnats, tiny, flying, buzzing, biting bugs, like the, from the dust of the earth in Egypt. Um, and the main point, though, is that Pharaoh's magicians seemed to be getting it. They could not replicate what was going on, and so they recognized it and called it what it was. This is the work of God. Now, notice, you'll notice as we go through here, we don't hear any more of them trying to mimic or replicate what God's done. They're like, you know, uh, the only time we see them or hear from them again is when God sends boils on them and they can't even stand in the presence of Moses and Pharaoh or Moses and Aaron, and they leave. So maybe it could be that they have recognized or at least begun to recognize their error, but not Pharaoh. You notice, not Pharaoh, he will not repent. He refuses to see the plain evidence of God that's right in front of him. And let me pause again to make a little application for ourselves. You know, we were talking about this in our missional community this week. By the way, we, you heard a plague, uh, a plague, a plug earlier uh, for missional communities. Man, they're great. I would encourage you to be part of one. We were talking about this in ours uh, this past week. You know, there's some, and I'll say this to you if you're listening on or watching online or if you're here today, there's some that are skeptical about the existence or power of God, like the real God, 
who's who's actually there. And I, I want to encourage you to be very honest with yourself in your skepticism. Um, because there's a big difference between doubting and seeking evidence while being open to believing versus doubting and seeking to debunk not wanting to believe. There's a big difference, big heart difference in doing that. So I would just encourage you, don't harden your heart like Pharaoh. Let me lovingly say, and we will see, soon see that that path, the path of Pharaoh does not end very well. So the Exodus account then tells us that God, uh, God's people would not be let go by Pharaoh, so God uh, would send flies upon the land. And this time, God would make a distinction between the Israelites and the Egyptians. There would be no flies around the people of God. Exodus 9, verse 5 says, And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. Notice that the intensity of these plagues is increasing. First you have the, the water, and then the gnats, and then the flies, and now death is in the land of Egypt. And yet Pharaoh continues in his hardened state against God. Let's pick up in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. God's answering our question for today, isn't he? For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow, this, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. Wait, this is mercy from God, right? Uh, for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. So again, we see God uh, asserting his authority, his power, his position over Pharaoh and over the entire earth for that matter. And his name will be proclaimed. We get to choose which side of that we're on, right? Uh, you know, the commentator I mentioned earlier had some great words of wisdom in making comments on this passage. It's not going to be coming up on the screen, but man, if you've got cobwebs building so far this morning, shake them off and hear this. Listen closely. They're, they're, this, this is not an exaggeration. 
For you, there may be no other greater statement that you hear today. He said, I think this scripture that is found in Proverbs chapter 3, it's where it's repeated twice in the New Testament in James 4 and 1 Peter 5. It says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I found myself when I was a younger man not wanting to obey God, feeling at odds with God. Perhaps almost every human has felt that way where they didn't want to obey God. They did not want to submit to God. But a lesson we can learn from this is God is patient, but you are not going to win this war with God. You're not going to win this war. If you want to go toe-to-toe with God, that's your choice, and God will let you do that. But in the end, it is God who will prevail. I believe what we can learn from the Exodus story is that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is going to win this one. I suggest we get on the winning side. Wise words. Wise words. And again, we see God executing both justice and mercy at the same time. He is giving penalty to those who shake their fist at Him. To the proud who reject His grace, He gives the law and its judgments. To those who accept His grace and listen to His word, the humble, He gives grace upon grace. So notice in the passage, though, even the Egyptians, even among them, there were those who listened to the word of God. God said, here's the warning. It's coming. Judgment is coming. Well, you, if you'll listen, get your stuff into the barns. Get your people into the barns. You'll be good, right? He offers for them to be spared. And those who listened were spared. We'll see it again in terms of the Passover that Pastor James will cover next week. So then in chapter 10, we see God bring a plague of locusts upon the land to devour all of it. And even Pharaoh's servants, when God brings this, Pharaoh's servants start to be like, dude, can you pay attention? Will you not lay down your scepter, man? God has got, it's like they start murmuring among themselves, but Pharaoh remains stuck in his rebellion. And then we see God bring a truly opaque darkness over the land. And I, again, surely it was physical, it was dark, but I also think that this was a supernatural darkness because, again, God makes a distinction between his people and the Egyptians. The entire land of Egypt was dark, except where the people of God are. There was light where the people of God were. Now, interestingly, Pharaoh, as you read this account at home this week, I would encourage you to do that, uh, Pharaoh seems to take this, this plague more personally than any of them so far. Uh, it seems kind of odd because it's just darkness. Is Pharaoh afraid of the dark, right? Like what, what's, what's the big problem? Well, most commentators believe that it's because that this plague of darkness was directed against the primary or the um, highest Egyptian god, Ra, the sun god. And Pharaoh was considered to be an emissary or the representative of the sun god on the earth. This is the ultimate Insult. This is Yahweh God telling Pharaoh and Ra and all the other pagan gods, you are no gods, right? He's saying that he is the I am, the only self-existing one, the only eternal one, and the only true God. He is Yahweh. He is who he is, and beside him there is no other. 
This is what God is uh, saying. This is the message that he's getting across. So Pharaoh uh, gets angry and he tells Moses, get out. I, I, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I will not listen. And before Moses leaves, he has one last thing to say to Pharaoh. Now, before we read what Moses says to Pharaoh, remember who Moses is. This is a guy who, when he was called by God, says, God, I can't do this. I, I'm, I'm slow of, of speech and this, people won't listen to me. And right, he's making excuse after excuse. He's scared, right? But now the servant of the Lord has seen the power of the Lord, right? Moses has seen what God can do, who God is. Now he realizes that it's not in his power. It's not in Moses' own power that he has to stand before Pharaoh. He's a representative of Yahweh, the I am, and he's standing in his power, right? So um, this, t- this brings Moses in a, a tremendous amount of boldness. Look at uh, Moses' parting words to Pharaoh, Exodus 11, verse 4. We'll pick up there. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who was behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all your people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Now this sets the stage for the final plague that will take place in our reading next week and where God will institute the Passover. But for now, I want you to notice that Moses' anger here is righteous. It is very good and just to be angry at evil. You know, when we see God blaspheme for us, when we see God blaspheme, when we see uh, rulers and leaders of nations bring destruction upon people, when we see sin in the lives of those around us bring destruction into their lives and the lives of others, we should hate evil. Now, not in a self-righteous way. Not in a self-righteous way. We should hate our own sin just as much, if not more, than the sins of other people. Um, But we should indeed hate what God hates. God rightly honors His name and His identity as the only real, true, ultimate, almighty God, the Yahweh, Yahweh the I Am. And we should honor God for who He is. And we should hate the sin of rebellion to God, no matter where we find it but especially when we find it in the mirror, right? So Moses is calling Pharaoh to put down his weapons and stop fighting God and um, be spared of judgment. He's calling Pharaoh to repent, to surrender, to wave the white flag and be set free, man. And man, that's what I'm pleading exactly for all of us today. Put down our weapons, stop fighting God. Um, And let let me not shrink from putting an even finer point on it. What we've seen here is an encounter between God and those who oppose God. 
Let me say that again. We're seeing in Exodus an encounter between God and those who oppose God. It hasn't been pretty. Listen, God is good. God is merciful. God is loving. And God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. And that means that God, I don't say this lightly, but that means that God will totally wipe out his enemies because he's just. That's a fact. This, by definition, is what it looks like to be... Well, let me, let me, let me back up. Um, being an enemy of God puts you in the camp of Pharaoh. And again, that doesn't end well for Pharaoh or anyone else. But don't we want God to do something about evil? We look out in evil in the world, we said, God, you should do something about that, right? Well, the world's just full of us. And it's not just the evil out there, it's the evil in here. Don't we want evil to be dealt with? Well, listen, God's the only one who can and will do anything about evil. And he'll do something about all of it, both out there and in me. He will do it. Not despite his goodness, but because of his goodness. And thankfully, God will also not only uh, destroy his enemies, he will show mercy to his friends. That's also a fact. So the question that's coming up on the screen is we need to ask for ourselves, what about me? Am I an enemy of God? It's a weird question to ask, I know, but I think it's worth asking. Um, You may think that the idea of God having enemies is too harsh and God's not like that. Haven't we just been reading this morning that God has enemies? Um, So it's important to understand what it means to be an enemy of God. What does that look like? Well, being an enemy of God is being opposed to God. Being an enemy of God is being opposed to God. So um, seeking to go against God's work in your life and the life of others. Let's, let's Let's have a soul check here. Being an enemy of God is being opposed to God, going against His work in your life and in the lives of others, denying His authority over your life on very practical uh, levels, seeking to call your own shots instead of letting God call the shots in your life, where there is conflict of interest between God's design for your life and your desires for your life. You just choose to do you and your desires as opposed to God's design for your life. This, by definition, is what it looks like to be an enemy of God. And you may have noticed that those things I just talked about describe the default setting for all of human beings. This is the human condition. This is what we do. Um, Now, thankfully, God is so good. Hear me, guys. God is so good. He invites all his enemies, that's all of us, to be his friends. Doors wide open. It's wide open. Now, there's only one door. His name is Jesus. But it is wide open, man. You don't have to stay an enemy of God. God wants to draw you close, clean you from the inside out, and make you his friends. Um, What does it mean to be a friend of God? Well, being a friend of God means being under God's rule. Remember, Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Obeying God's commands, pledging your allegiance to him. That sounds weird, but the reason it's right is because it's what you were made for. It's actually the best thing for you. 
to obey God. It works out in your favor to obey God. That's where living truly starts. That's when you begin to be fully human because that's what you were made to be as a human being in that father-child relationship with God. Man, God offers you deliverance and peace, and He offers you He Himself to fight for you and ultimately deliver you home. Isn't that what we desire? Isn't that, Maybe it's not for you. That's what I desire. I want God to be with me and for me and to fight for me. I don't want to fight against Him. And He promises to fight for me and be my victor. I'll take it. I will, I will take it, and I, I hope you will too. But let me be lovingly clear that Jesus, who paid the penalty for our sins, says that there's no middle ground. We're not like kind of enemies of God and kind of friends of God. Uh, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. But again, Jesus also says, and thanks be to God, he says that all who come to me, I will in by no means cast out. None of them. Anybody who comes to me, Jesus says, um, will never be cast out. So this makes all the difference in the world for us to understand that the God who is capable of so utterly destroying his enemies is equally capable of restoring his friends. Okay, you may feel like, man, I've strayed too far. I look too much like Pharaoh. Like I, there's no way that God could possibly restore me from where I am. Listen, don't underestimate God. Do not. We sang it earlier. His grace is greater than how many of my sins? Audience participation. All of them. Thank you. God's grace is greater than all of my sins. I, I, I have to admit, I look a lot like Pharaoh. Uh, sometime, you know? But hopefully, unlike Pharaoh, we won't keep hardening our hearts against God. We will humbly say, God, you're so gracious to offer me forgiveness. I can't believe you're still talking to me. I can't believe you're still bringing this conviction on my heart. It means you love me. It means you want to set me free, right? So let's, let's be humble before, before the Lord. Think about the power God displayed in judging His enemies. That same power has been displayed right here on this thing that we have behind us every week. Think about the power and authority that God has displayed in bringing about all of history to bring the Messiah Jesus, God the Son in the flesh, to live the perfect life, to die on our behalf, paying the penalty that we could not pay so that we can go free. This same power we see at work in a destructive way in Egypt is the same power that will enable you to live a life full of victory and hope and love and peace and eternity with God the Father. Run to Him. We don't have to be afraid of Him. The cross is promised we don't have to be afraid of God. If we bow to Him, we will receive love and forgiveness and life and hope. Can you guys tell, I want you to know Jesus. Man, you're missing out if you don't know Jesus. And listen, if you're uh, already a follower of Jesus, maybe you've found uh, Pharaonic, like Pharaoh-type tendencies in your own heart, man. Maybe you've slid to like, you know, I find myself starting to kick against the goes. Well, guess what? God's grace is sufficient for you too. He offers you reconciliation afresh. His mercy is new every morning, right? When did Jesus die for you? Were you born? He paid for your sins so long ago, so long ago. 
before you could ever perform for him or be good enough for him. All he asks you to do is wave the white flag, man. Just surrender. He'll restore you and make you free. Amen.